Shalom and thanks to KMTT and Rabbi Alex Israel for the opportunity of giving this shiur this week. Our Parshat Parshat Shlach provides a fascinating study into the questions of objectivity and subjectivity, especially in the words of the spies. I'd like to offer a sort of uh, surprisingly modernistic read, uh, a read which I believe is well grounded in the Psukim, as we shall soon see. We start with the central question, which is, what was the sin of the spies? And here we encounter a machloket between Rashi and Ramban, where Rashi believes that the actual sending of the spies to begin with was a problem. Rashi says, I haven't commanded you to send the spies. If you want, go ahead and send them. In fact, I'm giving you room to sin, room to make your own mistakes, so that in fact you will not inherit it. The sending of the spies itself is problematic. The Ramban, however, defends the decision to send the spies, sees nothing wrong intrinsically in a fact-finding mission that perhaps will encourage the people uh, on their way. For the Ramban, the problem is content, what the spies actually say, what they do with the information that they bring back. We're going to focus on the Ramban's position and analyze it in greater depth. Spies speak in three different stages. First, they come back and they dress Moshe, Aharon, and Bnei Israel. And there, their tone is rather moderate, presenting the fruit, speaking about the good, basically answering the questions that Moshe asks them. Then Kalev interrupts, and why he interrupts them is something we'll have to ask. In response to Kalev's interruption, the spies continue. Pasuk Lamed Aleph, V'anashim asher alu imo, amru, lo la'alot el ha'am. And the people who went up with him state, We cannot go up towards this nation, for they are stronger than us. Here the spies are explicit. They make no bones about the fact that they believe we cannot conquer, should not enter, Eretz Yisrael. And finally, the third stage of the spies' campaign is directed only to Bnei Yisrael. El Bnei Yisrael Emor, specifically to Bnei Yisrael. And they say, Aretz Asher Avarnu Bala Turota Eretz Ochelet Yoshvehahi. The land which we toured is a land which in- consumes its inhabitants. And all the people which we saw in this land are people of measure. And there we saw the Nifilim, some sort of primordial giant nation, Bnei Anak, children of Anak, Mina Nifilim, who are descendants of these Nifilim. We were in our own eyes as grasshoppers, and so we were in their eyes. Again, the spies here are making no pretense about the fact that they're projecting, they're being perhaps rhetorical, polemic in their view that there is no way that we can conquer Eretz Yisrael. Going so far as leaving fact behind and imagining what we looked like in the eyes of the inhabitants of the land. Grasshoppers in their eyes, in our eyes as well. So by the end of the campaign, the spies have made no pretense of trying to be objective and measured in reporting the facts alone. And they're quite explicit about the fact that there is no way and we should not, ought not, enter Eretz Yisrael. 
The question is, where did this subjective editorialization, conclusions of what to do with the information, begin? And here, the Ramban, in explaining perhaps why it is that Kalev quickly enters and hushes the nation in, in favor of Moshe, picks up on the word Ephes. If we return to the opening psukim, the first report of the spies, we read in Pasuk Chavzayin, they spoke and they said to them, We came to the land that you sent us. Indeed, it is land flowing with milk and honey. And this is its fruit, presumably showing up the large bunch of grapes, which we'll speak about soon. Ephes, nevertheless, the nation is a great nation that sits in the land, and the cities are very fortified, and the children of giants we saw there. Each of these facts by themselves were answers to Moshe's question. What were the people like? What was the land like? What were the cities like? But by introducing the word Ephes, nevertheless, they're explaining their opinion, editorializing, you will, if you will, and saying that it's to not. There's no reason that uh, we should be able to go there. You have Yitzhak Arama, the Akedat Yitzchak, brings a beautiful example. It can be compared, he writes, to a man who says to his agent, go to the warehouse and have a look at a talit the merchant has in stock. Examine it carefully for the quality of the wool and linen, for size, appearance, and price, and let me know as I wish to purchase it. If the agent returns and says, I had a look at it, and the wool is pure, it is long and wide, greenish and reddish in color, and the price, a hundred gold pieces, he has carried out his mission correctly. But, if he said, I had a look at it, the wool is pure, it is long and wide, but it is reddish and greenish in color, and it is very dearly priced at a hundred gold pieces, then he has exceeded the bounds of his mission, and become instead an advisor. This is a result of inserting the qualifying word, but... So we see for the Ramban, and in his wake of Yitzhak Arama, that the problem is one of opinion. It was possible, according to these commentators, to answer Moshe's questions directly, with facts, even facts that may have been difficult for the nation to accept, talking about these strongly fortified cities or these giant nations that are there inside the land. But the moment they digressed and became advisors, stating their conclusions about whether it was worthwhile or possible to enter the land. They left their mission as fact-finding spies and entered the realm of advisors, where they were not asked to do. This interplay between facts and their interpretation, I think, is alluded to in Rashi in two examples. Rashi tells us that the fortified cities was not bad news for the Jews, but in fact good news. Most of us would think that large fortified cities would uh, not present well to an army trying to conquer. But Rashi explains, no, the interpretation is the opposite. Strong people live in open cities. It's weak people that live behind fortified cities. Similarly, the Eretz Ochelet Yoshveha, a land that consumes its inhabitants, Rashi also says that the whole view of the spies was misguided. They went and saw a bunch of funerals happening and concluded that this was a land that was very difficult to live in. People were dying all the time. Well, Rashi says the opposite was true. God had created a miracle 
and distracted the people of the land, allowing the spies to move uninhibited. I believe in both these examples, Rashi is trying to teach us that the objective fact can be interpreted in various ways. Fortified cities and funerals aren't necessarily bad news if you know how to interpret it properly. What we've shared so far is a fairly straightforward read of the various Rishonim on Parshat Shlach, dealing with subjectivity and objectivity. But I would like to complicate the matter by asking the question, is it really so simple to draw a line between fact and interpretation? Let me share with you a statement, and you tell me whether this is in the realm of fact or interpretation. America is the strongest military power in the world today. Fact or interpretation? On one hand, you could point to the large armaments, the number of aircraft carriers. On the other hand, you can look at the fact that mighty America wasn't able to conquer the simple country of Vietnam. So what do we mean by power? What do we mean by military power? Is it a function of armaments? Is it a function of will, resolution of the people of the fighting army? When trying to parse the difference between fact and interpretation, we realize that it's very difficult to state a fact in fact alone. Every fact is a function of careful definitions, assumptions going into the statement itself, the language that is used to state that fact. In our modern world, we cannot really state a fact alone without admitting that every fact comes with a whole set of absolute presuppositions that underline that fact. To give a sort of bold example, does the sun move around the earth or the earth move around the sun? So, of course, the modern science is part of the Copernican revolution where we realize that the earth moves around the sun. But enter Einstein, and he tells us that everything is a function of where the observer stands. Everything is relative. If you put your observational point on the surface of the earth, it's absolutely legitimate to say that there the sun is going around the earth. And that point of observation is no better nor worse than any other point of observation which would state that the Earth goes around the Sun. I took this modern read and I went back to the Psukim. And I found, rather surprisingly, that it seems to me that the Torah, in perhaps an intimation of this modern point of view, saw exactly this point. In describing what the spies actually did, after they were sent on their charge by Moshe and before they returned to give their own report, the Torah gives us a very few, very terse description about what the spies did from the, narr- from the narrator's apparently objective perspective. Starting in Pasuk Chafalaf, we read, Now when you hear these psukim, I want you to listen for what the Torah is telling us and how it tells it to us. Pasuk Chafalaf. They went up and they scouted the land. From the desert of Tzin unto the area of Rehov Levochamat. They went up by the Negev and they came to Hebron. And there were Achiman, Sheshai, Betalmai, three proper names, the children of the giant. And Hebron was built seven years before another city called Tso'an in Mitzrayim. And they came to the place 
the ravine of Eshkol, and they cut down from there a branch and a bunch of grapes. Echat, v'yisu'u b'mot b'shnayim. And they carried it by staff with two. Umin rimonim, umin hate'enim, and from the pomegranates and from the figs. Pasuk chavdalet. And that place was called the Ravine of Eshkol. Interesting that it was referred to earlier as that place, but it was called afterwards. Al Odota Eshkol Asher Kartu Misham Israel. For the fact of the bunch of grapes that was cut down from there by Bnei Israel. Right away, the grapes being carried by Shnaim, by two, is a subject where Rashi elaborates and from that word too creates really eight people who went ahead and carried the bunch of grapes. But these psukim are odd. They are spoken in a roundabout sort of language which I believe is very meaningful for our overall theme. What do we learn? We learn that the spies traveled in a particular direction, that they met three people, Achiman, Sheshai, Betalmai, that are the children of the giant. We learn that they went to Hebron, which was seven years before Tzohan Mitzrayim, and that they cut down fruit. The force of these psukim is that Hebron is an old city, that they brought back very big fruit, and that there are very large people who live there. But the Torah chose not to tell us these things, even though we would believe the Torah in the narrative voice about what it's telling us. In fact, it was very careful about how it chose to describe big fruit, old cities, and large people. In each of these examples, the Torah chose to use an assumption first and then draw a line from that agreed-upon assumption. I'll explain what I mean. So on Mitzrayim is a reference point. Everybody reading these psukim apparently knows about Tzoan Mitzrayim and that it's an ancient city in Mitzrayim. And the Torah came to tell us, I don't want to tell you what is an old city or not an old city, but if you agree with me that Tzoan Mitzrayim is considered an ancient city, let me tell you that Hebron is seven years older than Tzoan Mitzrayim. I'm not telling you it's old. I'm just telling you that it's seven years older than Tzoan Mitzrayim. I'm telling you that they cut down fruit. And that fruit was so big, excuse me, that fruit had to be carried by two. Now, if you agree with me that fruit that needs to be carried by staff between two people is considered big fruit, well, that's how big that fruit was. But I don't want to use the word big. I don't want to force any opinion upon you. I'm just telling you, that's the way it was carried. And if you think that's big fruit, well, so be it. And finally, there are three people there. Achiman, Sheshai, Betalmai. I'm not telling you how big they were. I'm just telling you that they were children of the giant, Behe'a with a definite article. The giant that we all know about. If you agree with me that that giant was a formidable character, well, let me tell you that his three sons are in the land as well. Again, in each case, we, agree, we begin with an agreed-upon assumption. Fruit that is carried by two people is big fruit. So An Mitzrayim is an ancient city. And Ha'anak is a formidable character. If we agree upon those assumptions, then you can go ahead and conclude that the fruit that they brought back was big, and the people who lived there were big, and Hebron, in fact, is an ancient city. But those are not facts that I'm going to give you. Those are facts that you're going to interpret based upon the agreed-upon assumptions. In this reading, then, the problem in the spies' report is not in that they gave interpretation. We all give interpretation. Military advisors sent into the land to bring back are expected to give interpretation. The problem is 
that they left behind the assumptions that they were sent with. And they made their interpretations based on an alternate set of assumptions. They factored the Kodesh Baruch Hu out of the equation. And that is the problem. If we now read the Psukim at the end, we see that this is exactly what Yehoshua and Kalev are complaining about. In the final plea, Yehoshua says as follows. I'm reading now Perak Yudalid, Pasuk Zayin. And they said to the whole congregation of Bnei Yisrael, saying, The land which we cross through to scout out is a very, very good land. If God desires us and brings us into the land and gives it to us, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Ach va'adonai al timrodu, va'atem al tiru et ha'am ha'aretz ki lachmenu hem, sar tzilam ma'alehem va'adonai itanu al tira'um. But in God do not rebel, and you should not be fearful of the nations who live in this land, for they will be our bread. Remove the shadow upon, from upon you, and God will be with us. Do not fear them. This image of a shadow is a perfect example of what we're talking about. A shadow is cast depending on the position of the sun. If you want to remove the shadow, all you need to do is change the orientation. Change the position of the sun and the shadow moves. Exactly that is what we're saying. Change your assumptions. Change what you believe to be true, and the shadow will move. The shadow is insubstantial. It's all a function of where you're standing relative to what. More than that, Kalev's and Yoshua's point is not about um, the fact or not telling the truth. It's all about the rebellion, about rejecting God, is about the fact that they have factored God out of their equation. This returns us to an early comment that Rashi makes. The spies had said, Chazak humimenu, that the people in Canaan are stronger than us. And that's pshat, that they're stronger than us, and therefore we won't be able to conquer them. But Rashi reads, Chazak humimenu, that they are stronger than God, from him. Reading a rebellion, that in saying that the people can't be conquered in Canaan, in fact, what the Jews are assuming is that God is out of the picture or that the people in the land are stronger than God, which is really the underlying assumption that the spies are making. This helps us explain a seemingly strange drasha that the Gemara in Mesechet Megillah makes on Daf Chaf Gimel Amud Bet, where it derives the number of people required for a minion from the ten spies. Why would you choose ten spies that caused the Jews to wander 40 years in the desert as your example of a minyan, I'd like to say that it's necessary from what we've set up until now. Let's look at the drasha. The Gemara says in a double linguistic zera shava. First it links the word toch toch. Dichtiv hacha v'nikdashti betoch b'nei Yisrael. That kedusha, the ability to say dvarim shbe has to happen betoch b'nei Yisrael. And that toch leads us to another pasuk. We have blue mitocha eda, separate yourself from amongst the nation. And again, a negative example is used. This is the eda of Korach, Korach ve'edato. 
Um, and that leads us to the second link, where Eida, Eida, connect the word Eida from Korach to the Eida of the spies, Dichtiv, Ad Matai Eida Hazot. And from the Eida of the spies, we have the number of ten, because of course it's the ten spies that are the example of this Eida. Now the word Eida is significant. Eida derives from Edut, which means testimony. Edut is how we establish objective fact in Judaism. It's not a question of being verified someplace against the facts on the ground, but it's a function of having two people agree upon what they saw. It is an agreed-upon assumption between two people that cr- creates a dut. I'd like to say that it's precisely that that creates an Eida as well. And Eida is a community, a community that believes shared assumptions. And those shared assumptions is what defines the whole community. Why then do we have to look for a negative Eida, an Eida of sinners? Because the whole Eida, B'nai Yisrael, shared certain assumptions. It is a subset, a small group of people that chose to reject those assumptions that created a new Eida, a separate Eida, those ten spies. Only in their rejection are they define themselves as a unique Eida, ten as a minimum number. Let's take this idea in another direction. If we examine a leitmotif, a milamancha, a word that repeats itself very often in the parsha, we find the word latur, to scout out, or to tour, or to spy. That word appears um, earlier once in Sefer Bamidbar in regards to the Aron, which was Latur Lahem Menucha. It went out to scout out for B'nai Israel and it advanced um, a place of Menucha, a place of rest. And then in our parsha, in connection to the spies, is repeated ten different times. In addition, at the end of the parsha, we find the last paragraph of Shema. And there we find again, Lo The connection between what Latur means and these various examples is worthy of exploration. Rashi himself relates the two points. When he talks about Lo he says that the heart and eyes they're like spies to the body. Of course, as a reference to the beginning of the Parsha. What does Latour mean? It means to explore. But in the context of what we'll be saying, I believe it means to explore in a way where you leave behind any assumptions. It's not planned. It's not investigation. It's to wander, sort of aimlessly, without the grounding of where you're coming from. And here enters the Rambam. The Rambam in Hilchot Avarut Kachavim, in the second chapter, in the third halacha, warns us against overly free thinking. And he says it's not just Avodah Zarah that we have to be worried about, but anything which would cause us to uproot some of the Ikrei Munah, the foundations of our faith. In fact, the Rambam says, if everybody is drawn after the thoughts of his heart, it will turn out that we will destroy the world because of the limits of his reason. How so? Sometimes the person will wander that verb yatur 
after Avodah Zarah. And sometimes he will think about the unity of God. Sometimes he will think, Shema Eino, Ma Ma'ala Umata, Ma Lifnim Umala Achor, Upamim Benuvua, Shema Hi Emet, Shema Hi Eina. It's this sort of wandering. Perhaps it's true, perhaps it's not true. Perhaps prophecy is possible, perhaps not. What came before, what became after. The Rambam was no stranger to thinking, investigating um, foreign ideologies. He investigated Vodazara. He understood its inner meaning in order to compare and contrast it to the Torah. He did so, however, with a firm grounding in why he was investigating these things. It was never Latour to scout out as a tourist, perhaps. It was always to understand with the firm conviction that the Torah is true. And how we can understand about the Torah's precepts um, against the background of the Avodazara prevalent in a particular time. It is the significance of the use of the word Latour, to wander as a tourist, perhaps, with no fixed address, no f- grounded in a particular hashkafa. How then does that relate to tzitzit, which is found at the end of the parsha? Tzitzit are understood midrashically to be like guards, sentinels, at the corners of our garments, there to guard us. A story in the Gemara Menachot talks about a man who was in the grips of a powerful lust, and he went to uh, sleep with a prostitute, and it was a tzitzit that saved him. They slapped him across the face and brought him back to uh, earth, and he reminded himself of where he is and who he is, and he was able to release himself from the grip of that lust. There it is, the tzitzit, that are catch us, remind us, uh, in moments when we have drifted. Now, tzitzit have to be placed on the corners of a four-cornered garment. That garment, if you sort of pull it horizontal, I think symbolically... Uh, represents the Dalit Amos of a person. A person walks around with a personal Dalit Amos that can be Kona for him, that has a kind of halachic space. But perhaps he also walks around with a cognitive space, a Dalit Amos of permitted thought, of his assumptions that he goes around and with it investigates the world, uses it to interpret the things that he sees and the things that he needs to understand. At the corner are the tzitzit, and they're there to bring him back. They're there to warn him when he wanders outside the Dalit Amos of these agreed-upon basic assumptions of what it means to be a Jew. Lo tatu Zominut, that's heresy. And the Torah tells us that that sort of wandering that the spies did, leaving behind the ground of the Torah's assumptions, is counteracted, is guarded against by wearing tzitzit, so that our cognitive space is carefully protected with these tzitzit. In conclusion, the significance of a reality is bound to perception. Perception itself implies the application of basic presuppositions and beliefs to reality. It is a false promise that offers a point of chaste objectivity from where to view reality, from which to decide what to believe. Simply put, There is no view from nowhere. This may indeed be the sin of the spies, for they toured the land without viewing it squarely from within their faith, from within God's promise. 
Instead of their interpretation of the land growing out of their most basic tenets of trust, they attempted sterile objectivity. Their impressions of the land arose from a foreign understanding, and their faith was altered when it should have altered. Their faith was changed from what they saw, instead of what they're seeing being altered from what they believed. It is precisely against such an astray that the Torah warns us, do not wander after your heart and your eyes. Chazal teach us that this is the crime of heresy. It is in order to protect against just such an temptation that we place tzitzit on the four corners of our garments. When we travel about and interpret life, we should do so from within the context of our common assumptions and belief system. If we travel to the very edges of this awareness, the tzitzit will remind us of the shared assumptions of our eidah, beyond which we part company with our people. May we all merit to live squarely within the promise of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and thereby never again to speak evil against the land and trust in God's ultimate salvation. Shabbat Shalom.